Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we did research and stuff, and now it's here. I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And today, we are covering a very controversial game. We are covering Mortal Kombat. Yeah, not so controversial in today's standards, obviously, but back when Mortal Kombat was created, you know, we didn't have this necessary blood, gore, rips, and Mm -hmm. shreds all around. It was just all sugar plums and fairies and gaming at the time. Yeah, it used to be cute fighting games, but then... It's just just with kisses and hugs. (laughs) You mainly just kind of had like some slap fights here and there. But then Midway came in and was like, hell no, I want to see a man's spine. So, yeah, so Mortal Kombat hit the scene, was a major player in creating the ESRB rating system. Yes. and, And having that start to kind of develop what would constitute which things an audience could see, you know, whether mm-hmm. it was everyone, teen, mature, so-and-so. And it also led that to other countries creating their own. So it's, it's a very interesting story, you know, for, for what the game itself was able to establish in the fighting realm, but also in real life. Yeah, and even so, like, it's different depending on where you bought it. If you play the true version, it's the arcade version, but the Nintendo kind of polished it so it's not so quote-unquote violent but a lot more stuff that we'll dive into once we get into this episode but let's talk about the game itself mortal kombat is a fighting game developed by midway games and published by acclaim entertainment in mortal kombat it is a bloody 1v1 to the death to see who reigns supreme in the mortal kombat universe So each match, you basically square off against an opponent through a variety of different characters that Midway has put together that kind of rivaled other games, but put their own pizzazz on it. And and, and you basically take this tournament style. So similar to the fighting games of the time, you use a different plethora of basic moves, as well as some very specific moves that we we know and love, something like Scorpion's Chain or the Get Over Here, Mm. um, that are, are just iconic, that came you know, with this game and we're built in. And we're going to learn a little bit later that a lot of this was somewhat ad-libbed. You know, there wasn't really an idea on weaponry, I guess. It was like shot from the hip. Like it kind of came out organically. Yeah. And and this was also going along with that, that 
was really what brought about the fatality. So fatalities in this is kind of the secret ultimate finisher. Mm-hmm. And and what it would be, as we discussed a little earlier, was some of that, that blood, gore, and guts to really come out. So ripping that spine out, freezing your opponent, you know, poisoning them, all this this crazy stuff that was developed with it. And it's what really brought that like the heavy hammer down. It was already like an interesting bloody fighting game, but as these were discovered, this is what brought the audience in mm-hmm. and has continued the Mortal Kombat legacy today. Yeah, cuz especially with fatalities were word of mouth. Like a uh, uh, Midway was like, "Oh, no one's ever going to find these fatalities. Like if they do, it'll be dumb luck." But we'll talk about it. It did not take long. No. So so yeah, that that is your overall of Mortal Kombat, if you haven't played the OG, it's a fantastic time. You know, we're going to dive deep into the character development. It looks like real people on screen. Well, it technically is real people on screen. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about that and just what it took to accomplish this. Uh, you know, why is there a K instead of a C? Fun fact, no one knows, but people kind of know <laughs> if you research it. Um, so we'll talk about kind of that urban myth about it as well. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, just... Really, Mortal Kombat is what brought the other half of the fighting community together. Because mm-hmm. you already had Street Fighter out there, and this is kind of what brought not only like not only bad press, which like everybody says, bad publicity is still good publicity. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, bringing that to it is 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 what brought more people to the arcades and brought more people to the ho- home console systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was it was crazy because when this did release, I didn't realize that even the arcade version is still more powerful than the console versions, mm-hmm. and that's because they had their Y unit board, which would make the sprites on screen more colorful and vibrant, and the background uh, scrolling was a lot more complex as well. Yeah, because it just added... I mean, you have to figure, your arcade cabinet, you just have so much more bells and whistles than mm-hmm. just working off that one chip and a processor in this little box of a unit. You know, And, and that is really what drove... I, I think most of the sales to start, but as you know, as, as we're going to talk about with arcades dying out, they needed to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. What didn't go was mwah, the beautiful '80s design <laughs> of a lot of these characters, because uh, a lot of them were really based on famous films of the '80s. You know, Kano was based on Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator. Liu Kang was based on Bruce Lee, and Raiden was based directly on, you know, uh, the the kind of lightning god of China, but specifically in uh, Big Trouble in Little China, it was mm-hmm. also based on a character there. So it was this tie-in kind of all across the board of this kind of Chinese yeah. mythology. And obviously Johnny Cage was based on actor Jean-Claude Van Damme. So really influenced by a lot of the times of what was going on, mm-hmm. popular characters, and doing their own spin on this tongue-in-cheek kind of spin of yeah. putting that character in without using their IP, but kind of using it. Well, you think, because at the time, all those, like, early Japanese samurai movies and and uh, from, like, the 20s and 30s were starting to become more popular, and we're starting to mm-hmm. see movies like Big Trouble in Little China that were inspired by that as well. So then there's that, as you said, carryover into the 90s. So it was, like, this odd cultural shift that gave us stuff like this. Well, yeah, I mean, because just to touch on that bit as well, I mean, you had... Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan coming mm-hmm. up. I mean, producing these amazing films with just beautiful direction and uh, stunt direction and combat. And and that's really what drove the 80s into the 90s. And tried a lot of Western films tried to replicate that or add their own spin to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we had games like Mortal Kombat and you know Street Fighters kind of take those ideas of that kind of 
you know, Bruce Lee, Jet Li, Jackie Chan combat styles mm-hmm. and put into a game. Yeah, yeah. Now, the arcade version of the game was released October 8th, 1992. Now, what some would consider the true release of the game was on Mortal Monday, September 13th, 1993, when it released on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, Sega Genesis, Game Boy, and the Game Gear. There's a whole song about Mortal Monday. It's just a Mortal Monday. <laughs> the, the advertising, we'll talk about it, for Mortal Monday was phenomenal. It's beautiful. But let's jump into the studio for a bit. Midway Games was founded in 1958 as Midway Manufacturing Company by Henry Ross and Marcine Wolverton. Midway, which had been producing amusement equipment for the last 11 years, would end up being purchased by Bali Manufacturing, who was the leading manufacturer in slot machines. So you're kind of, you know, bringing all this arcade stuff together, mm-hmm. getting this whole sweet monopoly. The purchase by Bali would open their market to create arcade games. And by the 1970s, Midway had been partnered with Japanese video game publisher Taito. Both companies would license each other's games and distribute them in their respective countries. This would lead to Midway publishing the extremely successful Space Invaders and Namco's Pac-Man in the United States. Which I never realized that they were helping do like the distributing for that, which is awesome. Yeah, and, and it helps too. I mean, especially, you know, at the time you really didn't have computers and stuff. I mean, you mm-hmm. had some things around. So you you have to find licensors and companies to do those mm-hmm. things. So it's kind of cool to have that partnership early yeah. on. Yeah. Now, the same year that Pac-Man was published in the U.S., Midway would merge its pinball division with Bali, forming Bali Midway Manufacturing, and would start creating games like Satan's Hollow, which... That's my favorite title of a game ever, so I need to go find that game now. (laughs) You know, it only took a few years for the division to be purchased by Williams Electronic Games, which was a different pinball company, I believe, at the time. So it's it's crazy that any time we talk about these companies, how many merges and buyouts are happening all the time. Well, especially for older companies that, you said, started in arcade games, transitioned to pinball, Mm -hmm. then started doing arcade cabinets, and then... Well, well, did Nam- NFL Blitz 2000? Namco that we talked about, we'll talk about a different episode, didn't, it started doing uh, uh, the, the rides in, in malls or mm-hmm. something, like the coin-operated rides. For the next three years, Midway would only produce pinball machines. That was until 1991 when they were able to start working on arcade games without the Bali name attached to them. They would produce games like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Super High Impact, Smash TV, and Strike Force. Smash TV, mwah. Beautiful game. Love it. Yeah, but this is around the time when you had co-creator Ed Boone and John Tobias working with each other on some of these projects. And I know that come uh, super high impact, once they were done with the development of that, mm-hmm. they were like, I don't want to work on a sequel for this. Because that's we also see that divide. There are developers that are like, let's just milk this. And developers who are like, new IPs, new IPs, new IPs. Well, and... Coming up, I, I totally understand that. This wasn't the age of sequels and redos. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a new age. Instead of trying to cash in on what I assume would have been Super High Impact 2, Electric Not-So-Boogaloo, <laughs> um, you know, it probably would have skyrocketed because everybody knows that. That's a household name, Super <laughs> High Impact. So so it's it's cool that at that time people were taking a lot of challenge and championing on uh, new games, new ideas, you know, mm-hmm. what can we do? And that's that's really what's going to lead them, as we see, to start to develop Mortal Kombat. Yeah, because, you know, we want to work on something new. So let's talk about developing Mortal Kombat itself. Nintendo and Sega consoles were finding themselves in more and more homes, leaving a lot of arcades high and dry, and leaving companies like Midway wondering 
you know, what kind of developer are we going to be? Like, we can't, we can't go down with the ship. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see a lot of less, lots less quarters, a lot less jingly kids with quarters <laughs> in their pockets. What are we going to do? Capcom, around the same time, you know, they were kind of thinking about this, had just released Street Fighter 2. And the studio was captivated by it. The game set a new standard for fighting games and was found in virtually every arcade at the time of its release. So mm-hmm. even though we're seeing the downturn from the 80s to the 90s of this, you know, you still had your super malls, but you're losing those arcades. You're getting those yeah. home consoles. Parents would rather spend money on that, have the you know, their kids are, instead of them spending their $5 at the arcade. Mm-hmm. However, Street Fighter is still that like front and center cabinet. It made its way into millions of units that captivated everybody and i think really helped keep that life and longevity mm-hmm. of arcades at the time yeah you had those standout titles that were pushing for it you know even though eventually street fighter did make its way to console like still at the time it was something that everyone wanted to play well and that's the thing because development of mortal Kombat would start in 1991 from the beginning it was only ever intended to be a street fighter 2 clone with jean-claude van damme as the selling point of the game. This quote-unquote Street Fighter II killer called Van Damme was only published on 200 arcade cabinets. They wanted to keep this like a small release, mm-hmm. kind of like, like almost a beta test. Like, it, hey, it was, look. It was supposed to be like a niche thing, you know? Yeah, kind of a tongue-in-cheek, like, hey, look, we got this Van Damme, you know, hey, you loved him in those movies. It, it was literally just supposed to be his own game, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Hey, guys, you're going to love him in those late 2010s when he does the splits between some trucks. <laughs> just check him out in 91. <laughs> so this was kind of a, once again, a sort of beta, just kind of like a, a small release, test out their market, because I think they really wanted to start doing arcade cabinets or figuring out something to do with arcades to kind of revitalize it. What are mm-hmm. they going to do with it? Mm-hmm. And, and with that, Midway wanted a grittier version of this Street Fighter II game. Midway was not off to a good start, though, when Van Damme, or Van Damme, or however I'm going to pronounce it every single time, (laughs) declined the pitch to be in the game. Rumored that he had actually signed a deal with Sega. Well, he he did do a Street Fighter movie, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I think that was that because everyone's like, he never did a game. It's like, well, he did a movie that was licensed by. And it. I assume that they're like, hey, your IP is with us. Like, we might want to use you. You can't just like go and like mm-hmm. take the Street Fighter fame with it. A Sega title with Van Damme, Van Damme Voodoo, <laughs> it's now Voodoo, <laughs> was never released though. But co-creator John Tobias would call up his childhood friend Daniel Piscina who had been practicing martial arts his whole life, to help him pitch an idea to co-creator Ed Boon. Boon had also contacted actor Rich DeVizio to have a role in the game as well. So they're kind of like, they're kind of doing this like weird gift thing of people behind their back. Like, hey, Boon, I got something for you. Now, <laughs> sit down. It's something cool. My martial art friend. So they were doing this thing because they, they kind of almost both did this pitch to each other mm-hmm. of, of what do we want to do with this fighting game? You know, we can't get Van Damme, Voodoo, Vadu. Um, <laughs> so what can we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're like, we'll just call up our martial art friends. Mm-hmm. Well, Piscina would bring his brother Carlos along. And one night around 1030 p.m., the Piscina brothers and Divizio snuck into Midway Game Studio to meet with Boone and help them work on a pitch for a game. They would videotape some martial art moves as well as created concepts for the characters in the game, basing them around Japanese ninjas. Pasina suggested that instead of being called ninjas, they refer to the characters as the Chinese word for ninjas, the Lin Kuei, since the term ninja was way too popular, especially in the 80s. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, 
Teenage Mutant Linquez. <laughs> <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Linquay Turtles. <laughs> this would be the first time that Linquay would be featured in a video game. And even though Piscina actually had a book about the Linquay, he wouldn't lend them to Tobias, so Tobias had to go out and buy his own. It's like, so, he's like, dude, sweet, I have my own book on this. And Tobias is like, can I borrow it? He's like, no. You're going to get your push pop and fun dip <laughs> all over it. And watch out, your Lunchables. I think that's early 90s. I don't know, but you might have that. Someone who's older than us, fact check us on that, please. I wasn't alive yet. <laughs> Boone would pitch his idea to the powers that be at Midway, but it was flat out rejected. They were told a fighting game would never make enough money. And they they still, like, the higher-ups still wanted to pursue a fighting game that had Van Voodoo. Van, Van Voodoo, Voodoo Van, Van Dam, Voodoo. whatever. Love it. But Van Dam once and for all turned it down. Uh, so basically, Boone would start pestering the corporate leadership about reviving his idea. And eventually, they told him to just to roll with it. Let the production begin. I think Van Voodoo would be his Bayou skin when he was in the game. <laughs> Let's jump over to character development that's actually in the game, though. During production, Hosung Pak was brought into the project. Once they recruited all of the martial artists and actors that they needed, they would start experimenting with what moves would make their way into the game, with actors like Piscina doing multiple characters such as Johnny Cage, Sub-Zero, and Scorpion. Implementing real-life actors into arcade games was a challenge, since at the time, it was honestly rather unheard of. Look at Street Fighter. It's cartoons versus this kind of live-action motion capture. And if there was anything, it was more of that 2D sprites of like, walk, 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 mm-hmm. shoot, shoot. <laughs> like, it was it was just more of a JPEG after JPEG type yeah. thing instead of a, a fluent motion. Mm-hmm. For three days, Piscina and some of the other actors would perform just about every martial arts move in their repertoire for about eight hours a day. Most of the filming was done in what Divisio describes as a junk closet with makeshift backdrops and lights filmed on a high 8 video or kind of what our studio looks like right now in our renovation. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, though, they were filming in a hallway since the president of Midway had little faith in this project. So like, you don't get studio. You get the hallway with the rats. And then eventually they're like. Can we have the closet? And he's like, you can have the closet. Yes, Harry Potter. <laughs> you can have that yeah, closet. Yeah, apparently they're slowly becoming British children. <laughs> we're sorry for this. <laughs> yes, the Dursleys are running midway. <laughs> the actors were doing dozens of takes just for one move. And at one point, after getting tired of doing a jump kick, Pasina suggested that they capture an image of him doing a kick midair while he was posing on some stairs so he could get it just right. And by the way, if you you can... It's all over the internet. Go watch some of these old videos of them doing these takes. It's, it's awesome. It's so good. When it first like popped up on Reddit the first time, it was such a good watch. Mm-hmm. And you see the one with Piscina doing that jump kick and just mm-hmm. falling off those stairs because they're like they're like stage stairs. It's mm-hmm. like yeah. a three, four tier stair. Mm-hmm. And watching like trying to hold it, and they're like, "All right, you got it." And he just like falls over. <laughs> it's really great. And just seeing, I, I will say, the horrible costumes. Oh, they're, the, they're the so costumes great. Are so bad. They're so good because it's like. It's like mommy's first cosplay costumes, and it's like, (laughs) you guys, you're going to make it. You're going to make it big. Each move was recorded and captured at 30 frames per second. Then eight frames were chosen from the move and used in the game. And and this is actually still a popular filmmaking game thing, which is like interpolation. So you basically take out frames to speed up action. Mm -hmm. So if you ever watch an action movie, and it's like, it's usually shot at 30 or 24 and then you have 
three or four frames removed in certain areas or even more to kind of speed that up, make it look faster. And it helps in the game because it sells that like quick punch or, mm-hmm. you know, making it also just work instead of trying to have your arcade or your home console figure out these 30 frames. Yeah. It actually is only having to do these eight and it just fuses up a lot of memory and allows it to, you know, play smoothly. Fun fact, if you go to 30s cartoons and make them like 30 or 60 frames per second, throws everything out of sync. Mm-hmm. Saw a video of that. Fun fact, that's all you get for the day, folks. <laughs> hey, that was, that was Jesse's fun fact order. <laughs> Back to Mortal Kombat. The actors would try to make each character as unique as possible when recording their moves. Midway employees who weren't even on the project would drop in from time to time simply to watch the actors record their moves because of how entertaining it was, which I think is so cool. That would have been like you're witnessing history right yeah, there. Yeah, and, and it's, it's you know, I... I just would love to see that like to mm-hmm. like people who are really passionate about their project like putting it together kind of seeing like oh look mommy's first cosplay costumes <laughs> what are they doing in there and but to see them do this thing like oh that's like that's like an ingenious idea like i really yeah. hope that works out mm-hmm. that's super smart and and you know then seeing the development of it and yeah. seeing what they put to so it crazy and seeing like how the team took themselves seriously but really didn't Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of really good projects. I can't wait to cover a lot of games that I've kind of researched into that, where it's a portion of the studio thrown to the wolves. Mm-hmm. And be like, I don't know, just make something. I don't even care what you do. And they're like, okay. And, and then they, they conquer the wolves and ride them out majestically. Exactly. And then you get Wolf Simulator Two Twenty Twenty. No, but it's it's really cool to see when you're not given the resources and you you have to prove someone wrong. It's mm-hmm. really where a beautiful project comes. Absolutely. Characters in the game needed to be unique. The first one conceived was Johnny Cage, who is based off of Van Damme or Danny Rand, a.k.a. Marvel's Iron Fist. So they're like, we're going to get a budget Van Damme. (laughs) Tobias wanted more ninjas in the game, so he came up with the idea of just using the same character model while switching out colors. Mm -hmm. This is where Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and Reptile came from, all of which were rival brothers. And when it came to the four-armed character Goro, Midway didn't have luck finding a four-armed martial arts actor. It's a shame. Luckily, Divizio had gone to college with a sculptor, Kurt Chiriali, who was able to get on the project to create a 12-inch model for Goro. That's, well, that's because he was a four-armed sculptor. He wasn't a four-armed <laughs> martial artist, so that's how he was able to get this done He's so like, quickly. I know the anatomy. I know the anatomy. <laughs> yeah. And so then they just used stop motion for Goro, which it was cool even like I read some interviews with this guy and his his logic behind like designing Goro. Mm-hmm. And he's like, typically when you design a forearm character, you have this many shoulder blades. You don't need those. You just th-. like it was it was r- kind of cool to see the logic behind it. And, and, and it works. I mean, because already the characters are somewhat stop motion with those eight frames. Mm-hmm. So putting Goro in didn't feel that different. No, like I, I wouldn't have known. No, and I think it just flows really well. You still get to kind of fight it and, and work with it. It's supposed to be this overpowering character at the end anyway. And it's just really cool to to be able to experience that and to be able to jump in and, and, and fight a four-armed sculptor who made a four-armed Goro. Mm-hmm. As filming the character moves continued, Divizio and Piscina kept wondering if they were going to be any weapons in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of discussed that a little bit earlier. Divizio would eventually come up with the concept of Scorpion's spear attack, or you know, better known as the get over here. <laughs> but yeah, very monster truck rally like I just did. <laughs> Allowing him to grab a player uh, with his like chain, basically kunai chain, but Jesse calls it a chain dart. So I'll allow it to be called a chain dart. <laughs> Originally, though, Divizio's idea was using a lasso to pull the character closer. Yeah, and I think... And, and Scorpion also had a tiny cowboy hat. <laughs> <laughs> Not true, but maybe. 
But I think it was, it was Piscina was just like, Wonder Woman has a, a lasso. I'm not Wonder Woman. And then that was like, that was literally like kind of the conversation that they had. Also, just like a weird thing in a fighting game, just like randomly pulls a lasso out of anywhere. And it's like, <laughs> get over here. All right, let me untie you real quick so we can keep fighting. All right. <sighs> all right. All right. Yeah, we, let me, let me untie <laughs> yeah. this. Ah! Yep. That's exactly how it went. That was a great job, Jesse. Supposedly around the end of development for the arcade version, co-creator Ed Boon wanted a secret character. So late one night, he snuck Reptile into the game, switching out the color for the Scorpion model, and no one else on the development team even knew about this until release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was and, and we, a little sneaky. What I really love, too, is Ed, doing a lot of his research, there's a lot of developers who've done this. There's a lot of developers who are like, could this break the game? Yes. Am I going to do this? Yes. Is it shipping tomorrow? Yes. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> let's, let's talk about game design, though. So the whole design of the game was written within five days that the actors had filmed their moves, from the characters down to the name of the project. Like, in something that was different, it was the first fighting game where they were kind of diving into the characters themselves and their backstory and trying to give you more of, like, caring about them. Yeah. I mean, Street Fighter had, in my opinion, I think a more diverse kind of interesting crowd but there was really nothing about them except mm-hmm. they knew they, you knew their region that was yeah. about it at the time yeah at first there were names being thrown around like ultimate kumite fatality or dragon attack but midway designer steve ritchie suggested mortal combat and it stuck they did replace the c in combat with a k to avoid copyright infringement is one of the rumors on the internet. Yeah, so I've re- like there's a few re- there's, uh, there's, reasons. There's a few. One one I love. I love all the message boards of like people asking. They go because they wanted to. So that's a reason, yeah. possibly. But another one was saying that uh, while they were doing this, someone had scratched the C out and put a K as a joke. Yeah, and it stuck. They were edgy and Ks were cool at the time, which they were. It's the early 90s. You know, you're a cool cat, a K-O-O-L cat. You know, down to just the suggestion of, like you said, like copyright infringement, but we couldn't really see anything out there. And then also the statement that Mortal Kombat was too just general. Yeah. So they needed something to have like an edge or something like. To stick out so you know exactly what it is. Yeah. So I love it because it's one of those early 90s rumors that just plagued message boards. Oh, yeah. Like kind of like with Pokemon and stuff like that. So it's it's something that, at least from our research, there are concrete pieces of evidence we've seen, but nothing that was actually set concrete. It's all kind of mushy concrete. Yeah, because in interviews they're like, oh, it's copyright infringement, but they never – dive into it no like just, what was copyrighted yeah there, there was no like pending against it or they didn't reference anything so plenty of things out there just know that k's are cool and it did take six months to figure out that name yes because it had them going back and forth i mean it's tough because i mean you know fate, fatality did end up making it into the game mm-hmm. but it was an interesting title but i'm really glad mortal Kombat stuck because fatal i mean fatality i guess would have kind of stuck but not as not as pa- not as packedful as mm-hmm. MK. That's another reason. People on the internet were like, MC was too soft. So they went with MK as the abbreviation. Like, <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> OC. <laughs> so when the first demo of the game was playable, roughly five months or so into development, the four original creators added the game into an arcade cabinet and started playing by themselves. By the end of the demo, over 40 people from Midway and Williams were standing around, watching and cheering anytime someone had received an uppercut. Because the uppercuts, let me tell you, this game makes them satisfying. Because all of a sudden you fly in the air and drop down. So good. 
all of a sudden, Midway was receiving calls from distributors asking about the game, and some were actually flying in from New York just to play it. The creators ended up shutting down the demo before anyone else could really play it, you know, due to bugs and fixes that they wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, this is your baby. This is your project. And people flying from New York, like, I want to play like, no, not finished. <laughs> Get out of here. Especially when this was kind of a throwaway. Midway mm-hmm. was just like, I don't know, do it. And you have investors being like, yeah, just a word on the street. There's this thing that you guys are doing. I, I don't care about it. But uh, is it done? Is it done yet? Do you guys need money for it? <laughs> you know, so it's one of those things that, they really wanted to polish this up. They're really getting the attention. Mm-hmm. And even after, you know, they shut this down, they were working on bugs, people were still flying in expecting to play it. The president of Midway loved the demo so much, he gave them an extra two months of development time since originally the game had about an eight-month cycle. Mm-hmm. Divizio would then ask his friend Liz Malecki, who was a fitness instructor, to be in the game. Now that there was extra time to add another character. Sonya Blade. Mm-hmm. And Maleki had never played video games before, but she's like, hey, let's do it. Let's do it. Now, as the scope of the game grew, those working on it knew that the game could compete with Street Fighter 2. So instead of being like a blatant ripoff, they're like, ooh, actually, our characters could beat up their characters. It's kind of like a GTA Saints Row deal. Mm-hmm. Like, we're creating a... a, a Obvious ripoff that's kind of like tongue-in-cheek, but Mm -hmm. actually we can create a cool genre ourselves. Yeah, yeah. It was also one of the first fighting games that was actually going to allow you to kill your opponent. The first being the 1987 Barbarian, the Ultimate Warrior. Co-creator Ed Boone wanted the game to be violent and over-the-top, allowing the players to perform iconic finisher moves when the screen prompts you to, quote, finish him. This also made the game... That was good. That was like an Edgar Allan Poe slash monster truck version of it. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) This also made the game something that fans wanted to watch. After all, who doesn't love seeing someone's spine ripped from their body or their heart pulled from their chest? Because that was a, you know, we talked about Street Fighter. You could actually watch people play it. They wanted to give that same value to Mortal Kombat. Yeah, and they, you know, this original kind of Jean-Claude Van Damme 200 cabinets is now becoming this sensation. Mm-hmm. And, you and know, it hasn't even released yet. Yeah, and this is just demo ports of some characters they're playing. So, you know, the hype is building. I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is getting up there. But yeah, let, let's talk about now the console ports of this game itself. So Midway decided that they wanted to compete with other fighting games that had made their way onto the home consoles. Midway chose Acclaim to publish the console versions of the game. All of the actors involved had to sign new contracts, adding the console port to their roster, since originally it was just their contracts were only for the arcade release. Yeah, because originally Piscina actually went to court with them Mm -hmm. because they were just doing the they you know and i totally understand they didn't maybe understand this but they were using their likeness on the console port now and that was never in their original contract so piscina is actually the one to thank for everyone getting this new updated contract for all Mm -hmm. the console ports for them to use their likeness because this is really the first time you're using kind of a full likeness Mm -hmm. for a character well even like they were using photos of him on like that was the side of the cabinet was mm-hmm. him. It wasn't like his sprite. It was him. And they even used them in ads where they were coming out of the cabinet like attacking children. It's kind of funny actually, but still. It's pretty funny. Claim would then work with sculpted software for the Super Nintendo port and the Studio Probe for the Sega Genesis port. And at the time, both of these studios were considered some of the best developers for the respective consoles. At one point for the Super Nintendo port, developers had to hand code some of the animations frame by frame so it would mimic the arcade version. 
Development for the Sega Genesis was a lot easier, though, with almost all the same exact code making its way onto that port. Yeah, because as far as I can tell, to put into kind of somewhat layman's terms, it's kind of like coding for a PC and a Mac. Nintendo mm-hmm. was very much like the Mac where you had to, like, change the code around to fit this UI, change it up, and Sega was more this open source, kind of like Windows or, like or Linux. Copy, there's, there's like copy and paste it. We don't care. Like, come on. Well, no, and yes. <laughs> I mean, it works 100% differently than that, but yes. even Are you s- saying they just can't copy and sorry, paste that? In Jesse terms, you control seed, control V'd Sega with Nintendo. You had to go on a wiki and then download it and then move it to the left. <laughs> yes, there you go, Jesse. That is that is your terms. <laughs> Developer Jesse. There was major change for the Nintendo port. Nintendo wasn't a fan of the gory fatalities whatsoever. If something contained blood, it had to be cut. I mean, Nintendo's still that uh, family entertainment system, the mm-hmm. Famicom, it's still there. Most of the bloody fatalities had to be redone entirely for the Nintendo port. Since Scorpius Fatality had you burning your opponent to a crisp down to their skeleton. It didn't contain any blood, so it got a thumbs up. There's like, yeah, oh, okay, so you just boil the blood before everything else. We're good. Mm-hmm. The Sega version of the game did get a gory downgrade as well, but not to the extent of the Nintendo port. For the, the Sega version, uh, they turned the blood green, so it's like you're fighting kind of aliens, I guess, or like... Not humans. Yeah, and then Nintendo was even worse. It's like just like grayed out or sweaty or... Yeah, it's it, it was gray because it's supposed to be sweat. You like knock the sweat off your opponent, I guess is what they're saying. Sure, Nintendo. I mean, hey, Nintendo's a lot of fitness games. You joy kill. <laughs> I understand it. But sneaky little probe here mm-hmm. over in Sega did put a cheat code in the game, A-B-A-C-A-B-B, that allowed players to unlock that gore. Better known as Abacab, also a great band. Good old Abacab. <laughs> I, I love this. I, I love this old generation of gaming where you can't do something, so you're like, just put cheat code in. It's not in the official release. The cheat yeah. code's like, And if oh. they don't tell you about it, yeah, it was a developer code. Like, we use that to, like, see the difference between the mm-hmm. colors. That's crazy. How'd that get in there? How did that get hey, kids, in there? There's some guy, like, walking around a trench coat, like, hey, kids, you want to know the cheat code? <laughs> <laughs> I got it right here. Spreads this code. It's just big letters. <laughs> here you go. <laughs> there were only a handful of manufacturers in the world that could create the chips needed for the cartridge versions of the game. Acclaim had literally all of them producing the chips they needed. And, and I'm not even joking. Every factory that could produce it, they had them doing it. Mm-hmm. And Acclaim simply asked, create as many chips as possible before the release. The, the factories were working 24-7. Yeah, they're like, hire who you need, just work and make as many chips as possible. Like, that's so crazy. that the, And that's verbatim what they told them. Yeah. As many as possible. Like, that's unheard of at well, the time. And it's crazy, too, because it's basically like, what's your budget for it? As many as you can do. As many. Like, we'll cover it. We'll yeah, cover it. We'll cover it because we know this will sell. Like That's so crazy. It's it's so crazy taking this from a cool junk closet yeah. to making this game, to having everyone be involved, to President Midway now saying, yes, these are my boys. I love them. Come on in. Like <laughs> Get out of the closet. Get out of the closet. Come into a bigger closet. <laughs> they kind of have like this gangster accent for, for, from the from Godfather. Monster, from, yeah, from Monster Truck Rally Godfather. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, yeah, it's, it's just crazy to see that. So yeah, so as Acclaim you know, is doing this publishing deal with them, they're like, just do as much as you can. It's going to sell. Yeah. Acclaim had a lot riding on Mortal Kombat. 
so much so that it claimed stockholders were constantly calling Probe and Sculptured Software to ask how development of the game was going. Acclaim knew this, so they flew producers out to the studios to get them whatever they needed. They didn't realize, though, that both studios were working day and night to get the game finished. Some of them were sleeping in the office, so Acclaim had to then send even more producers so they could take shifts. Mm-hmm. Like, Because that was one thing. I was reading an interview with some of like the developers from these ports, and at first it was just mysterious phone calls. They weren't saying that they were stockholders. They were just like, so how's that port going? Uh-huh. Like, who is this? Like... Just a concerned party. But no, it was just, they would just get random calls like, is that going good? They're like, yeah. They're like, okay, good. Like, that's how much was, was riding on this. Yeah, and, and it just kept going and going into like building into this like partnership that really built between the mm-hmm. actual publisher and the developer of it. Yeah, but, but when it came to the arcade version alone, it was only developed by four people in 10 months. And really, it was only worked on by those four people. They, they just kept to themselves. They worked out of their closet, essentially, and just... That was it. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy that, you know, this iconic game was just created by four people. In it's closets. In closets, yes. <laughs> the best games are created by four people in closets. Let's jump over now to some marketing and to kind of what they put behind this game. Mm-hmm. And at first, really nothing. The, yeah. The arcade cabinets, when they were published and put into arcades and, you know, other various arcade structures... A bar, a bar or two, I think. Monster truck rallies. Um, <laughs> there was not much marketing. It was kind of more word of mouth. You'd have the kids go in. They would then tell their friends. Mm-hmm. Johnny would come with 10 bucks and quarters. There was, there was some print marketing, I know, because as I said, I've seen ads where it was like, you know, uh, uh, Johnny Cage yes. like coming out and like grabbing kids and yelling at the kids like playing the game. Yeah, it was more for like your gaming magazines mm-hmm. and, and other stuff that published around there, but nothing too widespread at the time. I mean, you no. have to figure, too, games weren't really advertised that well. I mean, this is this is still very early. I mean, it is Super Nintendo. It has some stuff coming out. But when you're talking about IP that wasn't directly Nintendo or directly Sega, yeah. you didn't see a lot for it. Mm, third party? Hell no. Mm-hmm. But when it did come to the console aspect of it, Acclaim would put $10 million into the console and handheld ports for marketing. Which is unheard of at the time. It was the biggest marketing push, period, for a video game. Well, you have to figure, I mean, if they're putting everything into chipsets and having it made 24-7, you've mm-hmm. got to sell it. you yeah. got to have something there to sell it. All four ports of the game were going to release on one day, and fans needed to know about it. When co-creator Ed Boone actually found out about the marketing budget, he told Acclaim they should calm down. Since he didn't think the game was going to be that big, he's like, calm down. Just buy yourself some pizzas. Just chill out. Just stop it, yeah, please. Just, I don't know how much money that is. That is too much money. Why are you sitting on a throne of money right now? What are you doing? And so, you know, he kind of held back. But this fateful day would lead to Mortal Monday. Mm. This campaign was created to advertise the console and handheld release versions of Mortal Kombat. Not only did it have a two-minute television spot, but a print ad in almost every gaming magazine. The commercial showed hundreds of people running in the streets all ready for Mortal Kombat with one kid screaming, Mortal Kombat! It's the silliest commercial. (laughs) I love it. The commercial aired in over 1,600 movie theaters. It featured music from the group The Immortals. Very 
on the nose for some Mortal Kombat. <laughs> but you also had like this is post release, but still some odd things like the Mortal Kombat Live Tour. Mm-hmm. There was this 1995 live performance of the game that that they really didn't have all the gore and violence, but instead made Mortal Kombat into like this family friendly experience with a laser light show promoting a simple good versus evil message. And it ended up touring like over 200 cities. It was kind of like Disney on Ice. I mean, it's it's yeah. kind of like a like a fight play. Well, I was... think I think it was like when they saw the initial backlash. They're yes. like, no, we're we're good guys. Well, and you have to figure too. They had to win over families. Yes, you're already getting everyone who wants to do the fighting stuff, but you have to get eight year old Timmy mm-hmm. to jump in and play Mortal Kombat. Yeah, and when you have Congress and all these other people screaming that the devil's going to ruin their son by playing this game. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> you got to you got to try and push it out there. So I think having that message of like it's not about like it's not evil versus evil to like kill someone. It's like the good forces need to win, you know, a, yeah. a vanquish evil. It's the Disney princess story. It's mm-hmm. this, the, the, you know, an age an age-old story that's been told over and over. How can we put that into parents' minds? Mm-hmm. But then we also had the movie. So with the success of the first Mortal Kombat, it only made sense that a movie would spawn from it rather quickly. It was directed by John R. Leonetti, Paul W.S. Anderson. It was directed by John R. Leonetti and Paul W.S. Anderson. And the film was released July 13th, 1995, worldwide. Now, though some special effects were impressive for the time, the overall plot change from the original game and questionable acting at times would earn the film a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it did make $122.1 million in the box office. And that's the thing. Even though, because you have to figure, most video game movies average about here. Yes. But this one was one of the kind of biggest profit turners out of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you, you already have an idea that can be kind of this teen M-rated movie, you know, this PG-13 R type stuff. Yeah. Um, because you have this idea for these characters and this fighting movie and this, this, and like you said, like even, even through the mid nineties, I mean, Jackie's at his height for a lot of this stuff. So you have a lot of those martial arts movies and mm-hmm. combat mm-hmm. and, and ruggedness is out there. So, you know, even though it didn't do so hotly with critics, you know, fans still felt the love for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's jump into a little bit about the campaign or somewhat about what the story is and why you are mortaling your combats. Essentially, yeah. So Shang Tsung is a master martial artist who wins the title of Grand Champion of the Shaolin Tournament for Martial Arts. This title comes with a price, though. He must take the souls of anyone he defeats. Eventually, though, he is defeated by the Shaolin monk Kung Lao. Sung survives somehow and returns years later with the half-dragon, half-man, Goro, who then defeats Lao. The age of the Mortal Kombat then begins. Epic. For the single-player campaign, you can play against seven playable characters, eventually playing against the same character you've chosen for the game, kind of being this shadow clone mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. of it, like you're fighting yourself. After these matches, you must then go through three endurance matches. Each one of these has you go back-to-back against fighters. You have to fight one and then fight the next. You don't mm-hmm. get to recover. All, all in the, the same health. Yes, yeah, so you, you get that same health bar. Once you've defeated these endurance matches, you can now fight against Goro. Only then, once you defeat Goro, can you fight the legendary martial artist himself, Shang Tsung. Only then will you complete the game and become the mortalist 
of combatists. I, I will say, going back to like the characters, uh, Shang Tsung, when you when you looked at the actual like props that they had for him, it was like the worst like bald it. wig ever. Like, listen, mom was trying; <laughs> she did the best she could on the budget she had. In the junk closet. They probably found it in the junk closet. It's, no, it was in the dumpster outside. <laughs> it was, but it's still like, it's, you needed to pixelate that because it was, it was not passable whatsoever. No, but I, you know, they did what they could with, I guess, whatever shoestring budget midway, like, oh, yeah. what, what allowance. Mm-hmm. They gave, they gave him a budget to go play arcade games to build this game on. <laughs> uh, but even though we had beautiful bald caps <laughs> and forearm men making forearm goros, there was that secret boss battle hidden in the game that featured Reptile, you know, who was meant to be that brother, color-coded different version of Scorpion that was mm-hmm. kind of leaked into, you know, snuck in, you know, at that last minute. Mm-hmm. Now, we know it's because they wanted him in there. This is word-of-mouth marketing, and it'll drum up that idea of, oh, there's another character. We need to find him. How do we find it? And then go watch a video. How anyone found this, I don't know. This is what I love about gamers and gaming culture with that. I mean, even like present day games will do that. Like, mm-hmm. you'll never find this. You found it in two days. This was supposed to be a secret forever. It was like the Scarab Gun in Halo 2. Like, this will take them years. They found it in like a month or something. Yeah. So, so you know, there's people, it's that hunger for like knowing and hunger for finding it. Mm-hmm. It's the same way that the fatalities were discovered, mm-hmm. you know, on accident. But it's like, that's a thing. Yeah. Fatalities were not supposed to be popular. What's or like, they weren't supposed to be known. No. It was supposed to be that, that again, I, th- I think an amazing, even if an unconscious effort for marketing, an amazing push for marketing. Mm-hmm. So with the, the campaign and the, the epic battle for you to become the champion of the, or, or the, uh, the grand champion of the Shaolin tournament for martial arts, we'll move on to cut material now. You've done your thing, but let's talk about what was supposed to be in the game, but just just didn't make the cut. And the first thing was I found was interesting was they were going to have an animation for Goro falling to his knee and turning into crumbling stone. Mm-hmm. But I assume that just wasn't graphic. They're like, that's lame. Well, also, I mean, <laughs> all, right, all right, guy making this claymation, make him fall into stone. <laughs> I, it is interesting, though, you know, to kind of like have the backstory of Goro and that's kind of how he's defeated. He's kind of mortal, but made from the earth, but kind of a half man, half dragon. It's interesting, but I'm glad that they kind of kept that out for this one. Mm -hmm. You would also have characters that would show more bruises and blood on them as their health would decrease, Mm -hmm. which they just probably didn't have. Maybe they just couldn't do it. I I don't know why they cut it. Yeah, I mean, it could be a thing of memory. Mm -hmm. A lot of of what we've researched in old cartridges is memory. Yeah. They wanted to do a lot, couldn't. Um, You know, and it could just be a simple thing of it's, would be tough to animate their own characters and have it move. Mm. But we do see that in later games. Mortal Kombat will eventually get it. Mm-hmm. Clothes tearing up, bruises blood. And a lot of fighting games end up adopting that style. So you have this visual representation of damage. Yeah. You also had the the original gore unlock cheat code for the Sega Genesis was going to be dullard, <laughs> which is down, up, left, left, A, right, down. But Acclaim felt that it was too complicated. I don't... I, I don't see really complication difference between Abacab and Dullard. Well, Abacab is literally just buttons. True. <laughs> so <laughs> so I think it's more of that where it's, you know, it's it's you can kind of stick with mostly buttons for everything instead of being like up, down, button, button, right, dot, dot, dot. So I think I like that they tried to go with an acronym for it, but I appreciate they kept it simple. <laughs> you also had a cut character, Striker. He was cut just due to memory limitations, mm-hmm. but later debuted in Mortal Kombat 3. Yep. 
And then finally, you had this is my favorite thing that was cut is that you had a fatality. Let's let's pause you right there, real quick. So Jesse's going to say this is his favorite thing being cut. Uh, please vote if Jesse's a sociopath or not after he reads this. No, the logic why it was uh-huh, cut. Uh-huh. The logic. Okay. No, was, no, continue. So continue. you had a fake. You had a fatality where you had a character scalping the other one, and it would have their brain exposed. But Ed Boone felt that this was crossing the line. Jesse didn't. Jesse <laughs> no, loved I, it. I love that this was cut just because out of all the things in the game. Ed Boone was like, that's crossing the line. We shouldn't do that. I agree. It's definitely crossing the line. Jesse doesn't think it is. Jesse loves it. Jesse (laughs) has a poster of this cut material in his bedroom. He he wiggles his feet while looking at it. (laughs) I'm glad you know what I do in my bedroom. (laughs) Hey, listen. One thing you do do in your bedroom is listen to music, (laughs) which is our next topic. The Mortal Kombat original game soundtrack was written and performed by Dan Forden, who also worked on the team as the sound designer. So, which, once again, smaller budget. You got to kind of get everybody everywhere. But it helps a lot when you have someone with all this experience in the game yeah. that can really put it together and put together a solid soundtrack that goes with the game score, you know, mm-hmm. the sounds itself. Well, this was still the era where you were doing a lot. Like, uh, yes. some of these older games, the programmers were also making the music as, like, a side thing. So it's interesting to see, like, it was a lot different back in the day. And that's why you have so many simplistic beats, mm-hmm. but they stick. It's the pop music of gaming because it was mm-hmm. just simplistic beats that lived throughout there that have stuck with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack was originally only available by CD through mail order with fans sending in a check and prepaid postage to Farden's P.O. Box. It contains 16 tracks for a total of 33 minutes and 12 seconds. In 1994... Mortal Kombat, the album, was released through Virgin Records America Incorporated, a soundtrack album by the Immortals that consisted of Belgian musician Maurice Praga-Khan Engelin and Oliver Adams, both of which were best known for their work with the techno-industrial band Lords of Acid. While sold as a part of the larger electronic music genre, the soundtrack album also had roots in techno, Eurohouse, and Eurodance, you know, kind of incorporating a lot of what they knew Mm-hmm. But also just like cool beats for Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> little, little dance scene right there. The soundtrack album was released to accompany the Mortal Kombat home version with TV commercials for the home version, including a brief plug for the album at the end. It contains 10 songs for a total of 37 minutes. Music from this soundtrack album would later find use in sequel game releases, as well as the 1995 film Mortal Kombat, where the song Mortal Kombat became the unofficial theme song for the Mortal Kombat universe. So if you ever need to go something, just name it the same thing. <laughs> over and over, over again. And over and over and over. stick with people. The soundtrack album peaked at number 16 on the Billboard Heat Seekers in the United States. Hell yeah. And in 2018, Enjoy the Rides Records released Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, music from the arcade game soundtracks for the 25th anniversary release of Mortal Kombat 2, containing selected music from both games as well as a bonus track and song Mortal Kombat from the Immortals album. Listen, if uh, if I finish this episode and never hear the Immortals or Mortal Kombat again, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but but let's move on to release versions of the game. And this is one of those things where it's been ported to basically like an official release for like everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did have the original arcade cabinet along with the Super Nintendo version, as we had mentioned, along with Sega Genesis, Game Boy, and the Game Gear. But it did eventually get a PlayStation 2 release, a PSP release, a PC port, and then finally the Mortal Kombat collection, collection with a K, 
which featured Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3 in one package on the PC. There's a nod to this in Mortal Kombat. I think it's 11. Uh, one of the stages is all the arcade cabinets behind you, and it's all like the Mortal Kombat oh, swag. Oh, that's awesome. It's, it's really cool. That's awesome. But let's move on to the general reaction and reception of this game. H- how did people perceive it? How well did it do everything like that. So I'll start off with a quote from Acclaim's president, Robert Holmes. Quote, We're certainly not in the realm of creating film quality realism. We're dealing with A, a fantasy, B, entertainment, and C, an audience that goes well beyond the young child. The hue and cry about a six-year-old being confused is inappropriate. You have to assume that a six-year-old has 70 to $75 and can get in his or her car, go to the mall, and buy it. That's a fantasy that's even more unlikely. Because we're going to talk about some backlash here very soon. Yeah, because Acclaim's marketing pushed Mortal Kombat to be the biggest video game launch at the time. When the game was released in Chicago, co-creator John Tobias had no idea what to expect with it. He was confident it would have a small following, but not really sure it would go you know, beyond that. I mean, Tobias and the rest of them were really nervous when they saw that $10 million budget and were like, listen, guys. They're like, please don't. Please, please, no, 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 no. <laughs> Publisher Acclaim had much bigger plans for the game, however, estimating that the console and handheld version of the game will sell over 4 million copies by the end of 1993. Leading up to the release, Acclaim received over 70,000 calls regarding Mortal Kombat. The game ended up selling 6 million copies on consoles and handhelds. Even the game's original scope of only selling 200 arcade cabinets expanded to eventually selling tens of thousands of them. At one point, cabinets for the game were being produced 24-7. That's so crazy. Midway didn't think at first that anyone would find out about the fatalities, as we had said. The first day that the arcade version was released, a 12-year-old boy performed a fatality the first time he played it. And now he's in prison. This is, this is going to be an M-rated <laughs> game. He's 12. He played until he ran out of quarters and then just stood by the cabinet and would simply watch others play it because he was trying to see if anyone else could do the fatality. Mm -hmm. And then he basically what he did is just the next day went and told all his friends, brought them all there. No one could do it. Like it was just a fluke that happened. And yet like he was the first person to ever do it. But that same arcade cabinet, they said that the next morning it it couldn't take any more quarters. Like at some point in the night, it just it was like it's full. Just bloated. Like as yeah, essentially they had to they had to un un unbutton the pants and just <laughs> relax. But yeah, that's so crazy at the first night they went to get the quarters and they're like, Oh my god, we can't play this game anymore. Oh, and it's great too, because if you guys aren't familiar with the fatalities, even in the modern days they do this, it's a, a combination of movements and button presses. And it also has to be for certain characters at certain portions of the screen, whether that means that they are further away, you know, right up front or even mm-hmm. midway. And, you know, for a kid, maybe he's trying to get like, closer to his opponent to, like, punch him to end mm-hmm. it and just, like, does it and then, like, takes Scorpion's hood off and burns his opponent. It's like, what yeah. What did I just do? What yeah. was that thing? Yeah, just imagine he did that and he was like, <gasps> like, looking around. And I think they said that it was, like, even, like, the fact that anyone played this cabinet. I think there was, like, a Chicago Bears game going on mm-hmm. at this bar. So it was a big deal that people were coming in and playing it. So, like, he, the kid's looking around like, did anyone see that? And, like, at the time, no one's paying attention. Like, no, that's but, so crazy. Well, and... Even even then, like learning the special moves for every character was mm-hmm. was a whole ordeal too. I mean, it, it's all a, a combination. Every fighting game at that point, combination of button presses and stick movements. So it's mm-hmm. really cool mm-hmm. to see, like you said, people to start to start to discover it, and it creates this. It generates 
in one day this insane marketing craze. Yeah. Now, the Sega version of the game would outsell the Nintendo version 5 to 1. This was due to Nintendo's policy at the time to heavily censor their games. The Super Nintendo also had some limitations with the processor speed, palette limitations, and audio buffers. Overall, it was about one-tenth of the arcade cabinet's capabilities, which... I, I didn't even realize how powerful, like, the arcade cabinet was compared to even the Nintendo version. Mm-hmm. Like, that's crazy. But this is where it kind of gets a little sticky because the game is partly responsible for the formation of the ESRB with collaboration from video game studios such as Capcom, Electronic Arts, Konami, Microsoft, Bandai Namco, Entertainment, Nintendo, Sony, and Square Enix. All up until the early 90s, Video games didn't have a rating system because they didn't really need one. Mortal Kombat changed that, however. Sega did give its own rating of MA-13 for the game, but parents needed to know at this point if a video game like Mortal Kombat was suitable for their children. Thus, the Entertainment Software Rating Board was born in 1994. Because you got to think, like, Doom had released around the same time Mm -hmm. as well. But not a lot of people were concerned about Doom because you had to either go on your computer to download it or do a mail-in order. These arcade cabinets are available for children. And with Doom, again, you're not really fighting humans. Yeah. It's more of that alien kind of gore with it, and you're not fighting a person you can see, and you're not ripping their head off. Yeah, yeah. So it's understandable, and because video games still, they're still marketed towards children in a way. Mm -hmm. I think it was marketed towards, like, our generation and the generation slowly and surely behind us a little bit. But now it's still there because kids are still be able to pick it up. You know, like I said, especially arcade cabinets, just be able to go there. And now you can buy it wherever you want. Mm-hmm. So understandable it's there. I think it's silly, but I think it's kind of everyone's discretion. But from now on, games would receive ratings each time they would come out. Mm-hmm. This didn't hurt Mortal Kombat whatsoever. Instead, it was simply free advertising, like I said. Bad press is good press. Years later, after the Columbine shooting of 1999, however, Mortal Kombat was one of the games blamed by President Bill Clinton himself as the cause of the shooting, along with Doom and Killer Instinct. After research conducted from the Violent Content Research Act of 2013, it's been found that violent video games like Mortal Kombat have no negative effects on those playing the game, especially early childhood development. You know, this is something I think will really, it'll really pop up over time, all the time, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's the same idea of movies, but not so much as harsh a criticism. This is a whole another episode that could happen. You know, should ratings be there? Does it cause shooting? Does it cause depression? Does it cause violence? Yeah, yeah. It's been concluded that because it's always the the thing. I'm going to get politics with it, but it's always the thing. They look at, was were they playing violent video games? Mm-hmm. Is that what caused them to do this What thing? were they listening to as well? Yeah, what, uh, what music were they listening to? Yeah, because, I mean, Marilyn, for the Columbine shooting, Marilyn Manson was blamed, and, and they had blamed Doom because they had, they had claimed that the kids recreated the school in the game. That was proven false, by the way. But, yeah. So it, they, they need poster childs for this stuff because, you know, people just can't accept that bad things happen. They need to have... Mortal Kombat and Doom and Killer Instinct made them do it, and 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 Marilyn Manson made them do it. But mm-hmm. and and rant and rant and rant with that. But yeah, so they were blamed with it, um, and the negative influence of the game didn't stop there. When Elizabeth Malecki worked on the game, she wanted her character to be a strong, positive influence for young women. You know, she came in this powerhouse, this, mm-hmm. this kick-ass character. Like, that's really cool, and I think she saw that. Like, she yeah, saw herself as like, a fitness model, as this badass woman in there. It's it's awesome. 
However, after Mortal Kombat was released, Malecki would contact schools to see if she could hold speaking engagements for children, mm-hmm. to talk about you know positive female impacts in this, a, a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. But no school allowed her to step foot in it because she was part of such a violent video game. And that's so unfortunate because she literally was like, can I come in and talk about strong, positive women? Mm-hmm. And they're just like, no. Like, that's that sucks. Yeah, and, and it's not like she's like, hey, did you guys see my coolest fatality? Hey, little Johnny, come up here. Let me do my fatality on you. <laughs> Let it, me break your neck with my thighs. It was, it was more of kind of breaking that glass ceiling and getting mm-hmm. into a gaming industry and seeing a powerful lead that wasn't a princess, that wasn't someone who struggled or like a side character. It was like a main character you could play that – you know, could stand ground with everybody else. Yeah. So yeah. it's a shame, but I totally understand it at the time as well that you're like, hey, kids, bust out like a stomach. And it's like, hey, it's me. <laughs> What's going on? So I understand it. But at the same time, it, it is a shame. And, and the, there was still some more controversy with the actors themselves, but mainly with with acclaim and Midway. So the actors who worked on the game were offered either $3,000 cash or an original Mortal Kombat cabinet. They all chose the cash. Even after the game was so successful, they didn't see a penny more. And from that, the actors tried to sue Midway and acclaim over this, but they didn't win. Most of the original actors didn't return to work on another Mortal Kombat game afterwards. But the actors did get a medal from acclaim after the release of Mortal Monday. Here you go, guys. You guys did good. Thank you. Which, I mean, I guess I wouldn't know anything about this, but if you signed the contract that did say these are your two options, then... Yeah, 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 but it sucks too. It's one of those things where it's like you're in a closet. Like we have no budget. Mm-hmm. Are you okay doing it for this? JK, we just got acquired and we're doing this. Now we have a ten million dollar marketing budget, but here's yeah. three grand. It's a shame. You know, in hindsight, I'd go in the past and choose the cabinet. That they literally <laughs> all send the. They're yeah. all like, I wish we chose the cabinet because God knows how much. Like if they had just locked that up in a storage especially, shed somewhere. Well, especially if everyone signed it or something. And like, oh my God, that it, would be worth so much. It would be huge. However, once again. When you're in a game that you think is going to sell 200 cabinets, you're just doing it with friends. You're like, 3000 for this? Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially early 90s. I mean, what? That's $17 million at that point? Yeah. Something like that. It's about that conversion. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Alex is smarter than me. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. question that's, him. That's, that's the actual conversion for it. But, but wrapping this all up, Mortal Kombat was a fighting game with lore, and fans bought into it rather quickly. Though Mortal Kombat was an overnight success, those who worked on the game were unsatisfied with some things like backgrounds, movements, and other minor details everyone else looked over. They felt like they could have done a lot better if they had had another month to work on the game. Regardless of this, the game proved that violence sells. Though it has become one of the most controversial video games of its time, it's without a doubt one of the most successful video games of its time. The game has gone on to spawn sequel after sequel with a dedicated fan base behind each and every one. Regardless of the controversies, the game stood the test of time as one of the pioneer fighting games. Well, that's exactly it. Like, Let's just roll right into kind of why we chose this because yeah. I want to continue with that paragraph and have it fresh. This is, once again... Street Fighter is kind of the cartoony, Mm -hmm. perfect kind of fighting game at the time. Mortal Kombat challenged that, brought this realism, and has remained this staple. Mortal Kombat was the older brother that, like, gave you swirlies and, like, beat (laughs) you up, essentially. Yeah, and and I think it was necessary to push those boundaries. It was necessary to push the art, Mm -hmm. you you know, putting real people in this kind of stop motion little animation, you know, 30 frames to 8 frames. It broke a lot of barriers in that sense. And and not only that, it's one of those stories, again, the odds are all against you. 
mm-hmm. you're thinking of just making eh, maybe a couple thousand dollars off of it, if that, or breaking even really at this point, to becoming such an overnight success, to still selling units today, mm-hmm. to, oh, yeah. to being a household name that everyone knows pretty much your core. Like if you mm-hmm. were to name Scorpion, Sub-Zero, Reptile, you know, Johnny Cage, people pretty much recognize those names. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with games, you pretty much know it. Even people outside of games kind of have an idea, especially Scorpion, of who that is. Oh, yeah, especially that. And, like, it, it still, as I said, like, had such an impact that now I remember when that trailer for Mortal Kombat 11 dropped, everyone freaked out. Like, even mm-hmm. the past few years, if uh, if something Mortal Kombat related is coming out, it's like the, the world stands still to watch it. Well, look at other IPs in modern day that have worked with it. DC. Mm-hmm. You've had Terminator. You've had Alien. You've had Predator. Mm-hmm. You've had all of your horror genres. Sylvester Stallone is on it. Yeah, you have all these people that have joined forces with this that are totally open with. It. I mean, you you take you know the whole Batman. I don't kill people. None of us kill people. We're all good. Into a Mortal Kombat game, into this feel of it, and and Marvel doing kind of that same idea with some of this stuff. And there's so many clones that have come that have tried to do the same type of idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, the Justice League fighting game that came out, that that's basically, it was worked on by uh, some of the guys from the original Mortal Kombat as well. Like, yeah, and, and for them to work on those things is is just so crazy to see that within the universe and, and to see what it has continued on to be. I mean, I've talked to plenty of people who've played the OG cabinets as a kid, mm-hmm. and like, they are Mortal Kombat fans through and through. So, you know, not only was it controversial, not only did it lead to an ESRB for the most part, it stood the, the test of time. Everyone's played it. Yeah. I mean, even like I've played it. I, it wasn't the first Mortal Kombat game I ever played, but I, a few years ago we went to an arcade bar and I was like, oh my God, this is it. So like I went and played it and I was like, it, it's still fun it's to still today's f- standards. Th- and it's perfect. It, it fit perfectly for arcade aspect, a fun, punchy, punchy game. Mm-hmm. It's so cool and so i'm really glad that you know we're able to cover this and to hear some of the stories of the struggles behind it i love seeing the development cycle and what it took to produce this you know how many times were things on a chopping block and and who changed what and i love like you know because we'll we're gonna talk about this in future episodes too of like main devs last day Hey, let's slip that character let's slip that thing in there are we <laughs> like, gonna test it looks over no. their, looks over their shoulder make sure no one's looking types it up really quick we're good I just I just imagine they shove another floppy disk in there and just, just <laughs> in, mash in the it same in. slot. Yeah, in the same <laughs> slot and just crunch it into one. No, Smoke starts coming from the computer. <laughs> and then we get reptile. <laughs> so no, I mean that's kind of my take on it. And I think we we both kind of agree in when we were deciding on games to choose. You know, this was a staple, not only because of it's just an interesting story to tell, and everyone kind of knew the ESRB idea and the cabinets, but what else went along with it? Mm-hmm. What struggles did it have? Legally, what struggles did it have? You know, and, and unfortunately not seeing that same crew come back for the second one. Mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. you kind of screwed that over. I mean, I believe Divisio did come back for a few more titles. Yes. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, it did sour that for them, but it's still a series that's continued on that is beloved. It's in every home right now. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's on every console. It's on PC, your Xbox, not is it on your Switch. Yeah. I think 11 is on Switch now. Probably cool because well, you know at this point Nintendo is now finally like all right all, all right. right we'll we'll allow a drop of it <laughs> so so no it's it's cool and and the innovations that have come out of Mortal Kombat have just been numerous and you know I, I'm excited to see as the series continues it's it's a fun game to play I'm not a huge fighting game buff Mm-mm. but it's one of those I don't mind picking up and 
like you said, DC kind of continues with this of like those weird kind of like super moves you can do. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a good time. I, I really enjoy it. If you haven't played the OG, download an emulator or be able to buy it somewhere. You probably play, find it on your phone at this point. Yeah, it's it's a good time. So yeah, I enjoy. It. Well, Jesse, what would you uh, rate this? What would I rate it? So I'd say for sure. Seven, seven and a half. It, again, not the biggest fighting game guy. Like, you need to have something like Dragon Ball Z Budokai for me to invest into a fighting game. But it's still fun, and it holds up, and it's just so crazy to play. And, like, see how, like, this is... Even the gameplay itself was pretty fantastic at the time. Like, so seven, seven and a half for me. Nice. Comparing it to a game about 20 years later. Um, <laughs> it wasn't... I, <laughs> yeah, if I had to do it, I would probably give it about four seconds of hang time. Add in a beautiful spike pit that you can launch people into. Divide it by no pizzas in the game. That's unfortunate. Disappointing. It's a disappointing thing. But add in eight frames of coolness, and you've got yourself, honestly, a nice hot and ready. There you go. No no pizza needed for this pizza. But yeah, uh, like I said, great game. Check it out. Uh, We'll be streaming it soon if you're listening to this live-ish whatever you want to call it. Around the time it releases. Around the time it releases. We'll be playing some of those games, so we'll have some people on. It'll be it'll be a good time. It'll be a great time, but that was our coverage of Mortal Kombat, research done by Jesse Reiners and Evan Barr, cover art by Jesse Reiners and Jessica Wellickson, and music written and composed by Evan Barr. And more importantly than those people, those people honestly didn't do much, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm just, you know... You know, just prejudice here. It's just just, your opinion. That's fine. You can share that. It's just my opinion. And I respect that. I don't. (laughs) I never respect my opinion. But the opinions that I do want to respect are those awesome patrons that are supporting us. So obviously, thank you guys so much. If you guys haven't checked it out, we have a brand spanking new Patreon filled with goodies, filled with uh, a plenty of new things that we have going on. We have a brand new show called From the Bargain Bin that's a patron-only one that Jesse and I cover. Mm-hmm. Some of our favorite and not-so-favorite kind of bargain bin games, what you can find at your GameStop for a dollar or what, what's in some random goodwill. And talk about the production and why it is either still a great playable game or should have burned in the fire. <laughs> so that's a great one. We also have some great merch, some a bunch of more exclusives that we've added. Uh, so go check it out. And one thing that you get is a shout out if you are a baller, because that's a cool term that people still use. <laughs> so we'll go. I love 2004. Yes. <laughs> Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so we'll go over that now. That is Charles Zitter, Tactics, Skyjack, Angry Canadian, Grant Dillon, Cowan Fong Feliciano, DGamer1298, Alex Harper, Dilfix, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Brandon Christian, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Semichki, Grant ODST, Loki2014, Nathan Vandevoort, Climbing Spork, and William Kroll. So thank you so much for the support. And like I said, if you guys want to check that out, link is in description below, wherever, bio. They're all here. <laughs> you know exactly where it is. If you want to give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram, we would appreciate that greatly. And if you have any questions about Patreon, shoot us a message on there. We would be happy to answer them for you. And if you don't have your AM radio tuned to us to get all of our behind-the-scenes secrets, you can check us out on our Discord. You can. Link in description bio everywhere. But <laughs> we also have some really cool stuff. That's one of my favorite communities we've created. I love to be able to talk to you guys directly. I get shamed on there very often. Jesse does get shamed on there. He's been shamed yesterday, uh, day before, and probably today. 
So it's it's honestly probably being shamed right now as we record. I guarantee it, and I love you guys for it. But check that out; it's a fun community to be in. Yeah, and be sure to check us out on your favorite podcast platform. Go ahead and give us a five star rating and review. We would appreciate that greatly. And lastly. Check us out. I mentioned it on Twitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to be streaming a couple times a week. We'll be streaming games that we talk about, some stuff in the news, new games, fun, some fun runs over at twitch.tv slash Sourman70. So that's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I'll be most of the time. And that's where you can find me playing games and goofing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, wrapping up, as we said, that was our coverage of Mortal Kombat. Let us know what you think in, in the comments or shoot us a message, anything like that. Let us know what you thought about the episode. Mm-hmm. With that being said, I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.